Well, good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast uh, for September 16th, 2020. And I just hope you all are having a great week. You know, the weather's been pleasant, not quite so hot, and with even some rain, you know, in the forecast uh, for September, <laughs> we'll take it. Thank you, God, for the relief. I know all the all of creation has just uh, breathed a big sigh and not having all this uh, heat that we've had recently. But uh, we indeed had a great week of worship uh, this past Sunday. Uh, our daily worship uh, shows up in our weekly corporate worship. I mean, our worship team did an amazing job leading our worship time and ushering us right into the throne room. So thank you to each of you who adds to our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whether by singing by playing an instrument, by taking care of sound, uh, I just greatly appreciate our team for all the work they do on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, today is a, a special day. Um, our ministry assistant, Lori Deaver, who works in our office and is here every day, working, serving faithfully, uh, celebrated her 21st uh, anniversary of uh, working at Memorial. Uh, what a blessing it is to have someone so dedicated, so faithful, and uh, willing to be here each day, opening the office, closing the office, taking care of business, and uh, really just a, a blessing to each one of us as staff members. So thank you, Lori, for all that you do. We really, really do appreciate you. Okay, attention all senior adults. We're going to be again and ongoing Sunday school class in the fellowship hall for our senior adults this Sunday, September 20th at 930, uh, beginning at 930 and going to 1030. This senior adult Sunday school hour will be for those maybe who haven't been out to, able to get out and worship with us. And brother John Webb will be facilitating our Bible study time together. And uh, so I encourage you to mask up and come out to the fellowship hall. We'll be social distancing, but you should be able to see some friends and maybe catch up a little and I look forward to seeing you there this Sunday. On that same, at that same time, um, September 20th, uh, this Sunday, our, our NBC College Ministry will start back to Sunday school as well. Brother Braden Tanner uh, will be teaching these students in the, the weeks that remain in this semester. And we have uh, such a limited time, you know, to spend with these college students. Uh, this year, they'll go home for Thanksgiving, and they won't uh, be returning till after the New Year. So, our time with them is very limited, and uh, we are delighted to be able to minister to them as, in this way. And thank you, uh, Memorial Baptist uh, Church family, uh, for praying for them and for this ministry. We will be continuing to uh, open up different aspects of our church ministry as we continue to see our state and local areas opening up. And we hope to be adding other Sunday school ministries like Children's Sunday School and Youth Sunday School, as well as our Wednesday evening activities, hopefully around the first part of April. Uh, barring some kind of major surge in the coronavirus uh, numbers, we'll hopefully be able to do that. And so we're looking forward to that. Um, if you have any questions or concerns about what's going on, please call us. I know this isn't easy for any of us. We are trying to keep our people and our most vulnerable ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. And again, if you have questions or concerns, please please call us. 
you know, each of us should assess our, our risk individually and in relation to our own families. Please exercise the freedom and the good sense to do what you need to do, extending grace to others as they do the same thing. Um, before we jump into our scripture this, this afternoon, I want to um, pray with us and, and uh, for you, and, and I hope that you will pray with me as I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for how you guide us each and every day. Um, Lord, thank you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for giving us purpose. Thank you for the provisions that you give us every day. Father, for every single meal that we've ever eaten, we just give you thanks, knowing that everything belongs to you, and you give it to us in abundance. Thank you, Father, for the resources you give us so that we can live life. And Father, I thank you for the joy and the friendship that we share with other believers and with our families. I pray, Father, that you would be in and through all of those relationships and that your name would be glorified as we meet with people, as we talk with them, as we share with them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I lift up our church and our ministries to you. I pray that you would help us as we reopen. Uh, Father, that you would continue to give us vision about the things that you care about. Show us exactly what you want us to do and uh, where you want us to be and and how to do it. Uh, Father, I lift up our nation to you. I pray for our leaders. I ask that you would... Uh, Fill them with your Holy Spirit, that that you would guide their decisions. Uh, Father, I pray for our military uh, here and around the world. I ask that you would protect them as they protect us and our freedoms. Father, I lift up our police and uh, our first responders as they help keep us safe. I pray, Father, for their lives. I, I ask, God, that you would be bringing in to the senseless um, violence that is going on all across this nation. I pray, Father, that, that um, you would just protect uh, those who are protecting us. And, uh, Father, that, that you would just put a hedge around them. Oh, Father, it, is, it has gotten so bad. And I just pray, Father, that you would take control, that, Father, you would show yourself mighty in this. Um, we know that uh, you're not taken off guard by it. But Father, I pray that you would just um, bring peace and calm to this nation. Even in this election year, Father, as we approach the election, I pray that you would help people to get out and vote and do the things they need to do. And uh, Father, that you would be glorified in it and through it. Lord, I lift up our teachers, our students our administrators, all of those who are um, out there every day teaching, leading others. I pray that your grace and that your mercy would be upon them. Father, I pray for our homebound, those in our church body that uh, may be shut in or maybe they cannot get out. Um, I ask that you would, uh, your presence would be with them even now and that as Uh, As they listen to this podcast, Father, that that they would sense your presence with them. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Uh, We love you. We thank you for being our teacher and guide. Uh, We ask that if you are looking for vessels to walk this earth in, that you would fill us and use us to accomplish your kingdom purposes. 
It is our joy to serve the Lord Jesus and Almighty Father. And I ask that you would just continue to guide us as we seek you, as we ask, as we seek, as we knock, that you would open up to us the things that that are needed. Father, we, we are so blessed. We are so thankful to call you our Father, uh, knowing that you love us so very much. It's our joy to serve you and to be your witnesses wherever we go. Thank you for loving us first. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today our scripture passage is in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read verses 16 through 39. And we talked a little bit last week about that being the good news, and then the the bad news would be this week. So uh, we're going to dive right into this. Um, You know, most of the arguments that are hurled against the Christian faith today are based on, I want to say, a caricature of Christianity, which is a distorted view of the real thing. It's not the actual thing. And these strong attacks come against Christianity because people fail to distinguish between true Christians and false professing Christians. Uh, The Bible is very clear that there are people who think they are Christians and are not. And it is these mere professing Christians that give Christ and His church um, a bad reputation. Uh, However, once the world sees the real thing, it has little to say in opposition, even though it may not believe Christianity to be true. See, the book of Hebrews sets before us in a very masterful fashion, this true faith. It reveals to us clearly the difference between the false and the true, and we must learn to think discriminately through the issues that are being presented. (laughs) Charles, that reminds me, Charles Spurgeon um, tells about a church that was asked to accept as their minister a man who did not believe in hell. They said, you have come to tell us that there is no hell. If your doctrine is true, we certainly do not need you. And if it's not true, we don't want you. So either way, we can do without you. (laughs) You know, to speak about God's terrifying future judgment is not pleasant, but it's necessary since the Bible clearly teaches that it will happen. Although some prominent evangelical leaders today, they deny the doctrine of hell, we need to remember that Jesus spoke more about the terrors of hell than anyone else in the Bible. We cannot claim to follow Christ and at the same time reject the doctrine of eternal punishment. You know, sometimes people will say things like, well, I don't believe in a God of judgment. My God is a God of love. If you subscribe to that view, then your, quote, little g God is not the big G living God who reveals himself through his word. You know, one of the earliest records of God's revelation of himself, he said to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps His loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I mean, that's where we all cheer, right? And we say, yeah, that's my kind of God. But keep going. This is found in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Keep going. It says, Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I mean, you may protest and say, well, but that's the, that's the God of the Old Testament. I believe in Jesus who was always kind and gentle. Really? I again remind you that Jesus spoke more often about the terrors of hell than anyone else in the Bible. He called it a, a, a place in, in uh, Mark 9, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He said that punishment is for one who causes one of his little ones to stumble would be far worse than if he had a millstone hung in, around his neck and was cast into the sea. He described hell as a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said that it's better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than for your whole body to go to hell. He described the rich man in hell as being in agony in flames. And he further described those flames as eternal fire, which is the same word used for eternal life. See, in this section, this is another section of uh, the book of Hebrews that deals with the subjects of apostates. An apostate is one who at one time had a great knowledge of the Christian faith and even made some external profession of faith, but later turned completely away from Christ and the church. An apostate has never been saved, but at one time they gave some outward evidences of real faith. But when they turned away, they wanted nothing more to do with the Savior, indicating that they were never really saved in the first place. See, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to get many of these professing Hebrew Christians from abandoning Christianity and going back into Judaism. There were some who had already apostatized. They had left and left Christ to go back to, to back under the law of Moses and the Old Testament ritual and the sacrifices. It says in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking, not abandoning our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. See, there were others who were contemplating this move back into Judaism because they could not take the persecution they were receiving as Christians from the unsaved world. The author is convinced that the great majority of these professing Hebrew Christians were genuinely saved, but since they were babes in Christ and had grown cold and indifferent to Christ, uh, they are called brethren. He says, since therefore brethren, verse 19, he says, however, the author is not really sure about the reality of salvation in their lives on a few of these, of a few of these professing Hebrew Christians and that some of them are on the verge of apostasy. Because of this, the author takes time to expose the false from the true, so that the readers might examine themselves to see if they are really saved. You know, we could put it in terms like this. The hard heart, the one that's hardened, needs the warning. The broken heart needs the comforting. So let's talk about this false uh, believer, this this one that is, is professing Christ, the, the, the tragedy, if you will, of apostasy. Look at verse 26. I'm going to read down through verse 31 in chapter 10. 
says this. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and of the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will receive, excuse me, he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what is the willful, terrible sin that has such awful results? It's the sin of apostasy. Some of these professing Hebrew Christians had a full knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but they purposefully turned away from the truth to go back into Judaism. The willful sin is a complete and repeated rejection of Christ and a permanent withdrawal from the Christian assembly. An apostate knows the true gospel of Christ, but later denies that truth. This willful sin is not just some ordinary act of sin by, let's say, a believer. For all Christians sin at times after they have truly converted to Christ. The present tense in the Greek means to go on repeatedly sinning willfully. And this makes a long, continued attitude of resistance. This act is the sin of apostasy where someone rejects repeatedly the claims of Christ and passes beyond a point where they can no longer be saved. This willful sin is never an act of, uh, never a sin of ignorance, but a voluntary, arrogant choice where one turns their back on Christ after giving evidence at one time of knowing Him. These professing Hebrew Christians would not allow Christ to be Lord of their lives because they could not take the persecution of the unsaved world. What the writer is saying is that once that choice of apostates has been fully made, I mean, it might take years, then there's no way back and this person will never be saved. He said there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. See, Christ is the perfect sacrifice for sins. He shed His blood once and for all and forever for sin, and there is never a need for the shedding of another drop of blood. However, if a person totally rejects Christ, there remains no sacrifice for his sins. This person will never be saved because they have willfully rejected Jesus Christ and His work concerning sin. They've placed themselves outside the sphere of salvation. See, Christ's death was sufficient to forgive any sinner, but an apostate will not help themselves to that sacrifice because of the very hardness of their own heart. He goes on and says, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. See, the apostate will most certainly experience the eternal wrath of Almighty God, 
no matter what their profession of faith may have been at one time. This certain judgment indicates a punishment of indefinable magnitude, something that is inexpressible, inconceivable. God's judgment is indescribable, but it is certain, and it will come down upon all the enemies of Christ. See, if a person rejects Christ as God's only sacrifice for sins, what alternative is left to God but to punish that person with the fires of hell for their sin? He goes on to say, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? See, the author argues from the lesser to the greater. See, in the Old Testament, any person who rejected the Mosaic law was stoned to death. Their punishment was without mercy. But how much more severe will God's punishment be to those who reject His Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, to reject the Mosaic Law, it brought physical death. But to reject Christ in this life will bring eternal death in the next life. See, God is every bit a God of wrath in the New Testament just as He is in the Old Testament. In fact, He is more jealous for His Son than He ever was for the law of Moses. Trampling underfoot. Let's talk about that. Trampling underfoot the the Son of God. See, sin equals the trampling Christ underfoot. See, the awfulness of sin lay not in its breaking of the law, but in its trampling of the love of Christ underfoot. It is not mere rebelliousness against the law, but it really is the wounding of love. See, these apostates were guilty of three sins against the three members of the Holy Trinity. They have contempt for God the Father, who sent the Son of God, to be the only sacrifice for sin. They have total contempt for Jesus Christ and then trample Him underfoot in their thinking. An apostate rejects the Son of God and the God who sent Him. An apostate does not want Christ to be the Lord of their life, and they refuse to give Christ the right to govern their life. This deliberate and willful act of rejection makes them haters of Christ. See, sin is equal to the failure to see the sacredness of sacred things. The writer says, look at the shed blood and the broken body of Christ. Look at what your new relationship to God cost. Can you treat it like it doesn't matter? See, sin is the failure to realize the sacredness of that sacrifice upon the cross. And has regarded as unclean or common the blood of the covenant which, by which he was sanctified. See, an apostate, they, they mock the blood of Christ and consider it merely a common blood with no more power to save than the blood of any other human. 
They disrespect the blood of Christ and say that Christ's blood is not the only way to get to heaven. An apostate once professed faith in Christ and outwardly appeared to be sanctified or set apart to God. It appeared that they were saved and washed in the blood of Christ, but later they rejected the whole Christian faith and thought it was a hoax, a myth, or you know, kind of like a fairy tale. And it says there, and has insulted the spirit of grace. See, an apostate has outraged the Holy Spirit. All of the wooing, the pleadings, the convictions of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus Christ and His salvation work are continually rejected by an apostate. So an apostate sins against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their judgment is deserved, it is certain, and it is waiting. They will not escape. Anyone who refuses to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ over their life and also refuses the work of Jesus Christ for their sin is on the verge of apostasy. How terrible, how completely terrible to fall into this sin. How tragic to pass a point in one's experience where they might never be able to be saved. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, the author quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God will judge all who rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ because God knows the human heart. God alone has the sovereign right to inflict punishment upon His creatures and His judgment will fall justified and fairly upon everyone, upon all. See, the author then quotes from Psalm 135.14 and says, The Lord will judge His people. There are many in this world who claim to be the people of God. They may be baptized, have their name on a church roll, or even attend church regularly, but God will judge those who profess to be His people, for He alone knows for sure the true from the false. Those who have the externals of Christianity without the reality of Christ will be judged. See, God knows who are those who are Christians and those who are churchmen, who have regeneration and not just religion. God looks into our hearts to see if we have true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Rejectors of Christ and apostates, God will judge. Remember, it will be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God at the day of judgment. We might be able to fool people around us as to the reality of true saving faith. But brothers and sisters, we can never fool God. His judgment will be fierce and fearful. You know, this passage of Scripture reminds us, of course, of the most famous sermon preached during the Great Awakening and likely the most famous sermon in all of American history, preached by Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was delivered at Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. And Edward used startling imagery 
And I quote, All your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing around it and ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice directs the bow toward your heart and strains at the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow a single moment from being made drunk with your blood. Listen, the risks are just as high today. Heaven or hell? As Kent Hughes said, Jonathan Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. Folks, this is a warning to all Christians to persevere in the faith, to lean into Christ-like living so that we may prove and demonstrate with our lives that we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews now changes gears and, and he talks about the true, not the false, but the true and the triumph of faith. Look at verse 32 and following. He says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. See, the question in the minds of these professing Hebrew Christians would be, how can I know if I am not, an, how can I know if I'm an apostate? How can I determine whether I'm true or false? Notice carefully that the author does not turn to doctrine per se for evidence of genuine saving faith, but good works and the enduring of suffering for the cause of Christ. See, the mark of real Christians is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They follow Christ at great cost to themselves. 
The author takes the readers back to when they were first converted, when they were initially enlightened by the Holy Spirit to the reality of Christ. It was in these early days that they suffered much for Christ and they triumphed through them. There was evidence that God had really worked in their lives and their early Christian years were marked by love and joy and hope despite the hardships, despite the persecution. Now there was a great need in their lives to continue to press on in the faith and to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ so that it would be evident to all that they were genuine believers in Christ. He says partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. These professing Hebrew Christians were mocked and ridiculed by the unsaved world for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they suffered much for their stand for Christ. But folks, this is the mark of a true Christian. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians will be exposed to public contempt, They will be scorned. They're going to be reviled by this world. We will never be popular with the great majority of people in this unsaved world. They killed Jesus. Figure it out. They're not going to like you either. He says, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. These Christians had become sympathizers and sharers with other Christians who had been persecuted and were being persecuted for their faith. They were willing to suffer for and with their brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. When these Christians lost face in the community, when their properties were seized, their jobs lost, and their businesses ruined, they rejoiced that they knew they were suffering for Christ, which was an evidence of true saving faith. They clearly understood that their security did not lie in carnal earthly things, but in heavenly realities. They were occupied by eternal things, not earthly things, and their loss of earthly things was merely a pledge of a greater heavenly reward. These Christians had a treasure that time could never take away. See, when tragedy comes upon a Christian, we have a great opportunity to be a witness to the world. The world acts a certain way when suffering comes. But when they see Christians rejoicing in suffering and not, let me say this again, not complaining, they are stunned and know that there is something different about a Christian. The writer says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Since these Hebrew Christians endured so much suffering for Christ in former days, they were exhorted not to bail on their faith in Jesus Christ now. They had at one time triumphed over the pressures of the Christ-opposing world. But now they must continue to triumph. However, many of them were weak and immature believers, and some had grown cold and indifferent to Christ. They were about to yield to the temptation of leaving Christianity and going back into Judaism. The author reminds them that their continual confidence in Christ, through perseverance, 
would bring them the reward of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we must never stop believing in Christ. We must always keep on trucking, keep on keeping on. We must continue to press on in Christ for the end of our perseverance is eternal life. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. See, in the Christian life, there are crosses to bear. There are burdens to carry and hardships to endure. And especially as we take our stand for Jesus Christ. See, the road to heaven is sometimes rocky, but it always leads to life eternal. The promise of eternal life is made to those who persevere or endure and and not to those who are traitors to Christ and turn away from the faith. Does your way often seem hard, difficult, maybe even lonely, as you're exposed to the reproach of others? Don't despair. Don't give up. God is with you. And at the end of all your sufferings and tribulations is the reward of eternal life. Understand this, that it has been planned by God that we as Christians should suffer for Christ because in doing so, our faith is strengthened. You know, Romans 5, 3 and 4 says this. It says, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Peter in 1 Peter 1, excuse me, 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The writer then quotes out of Habakkuk 2.3, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay to point out that Christ is coming to judge all people. And at that time, He will clean house. He's going to clean house in the professing church. Rejectors, false professors, phony Christians, apostates will experience the scathing wrath of Almighty God. But true believers will be surrounded in His love and granted eternal life in all its fullness. He goes on to quote Habakkuk 2.4 but my righteous one shall live by faith. Just to show how important it is for the righteous of God to exercise continual faith in perseverance. This quote is found kind of three places in the New Testament. In Romans, the emphasis is on the righteous one, who is declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. In Galatians, the thrust is upon shall live, For by faith is the only way to live if one is going to combat legalism and human works as a means of salvation. But in Hebrews, the attention is focused on by faith. For it is essential and necessary that true believers persevere in Christ by faith. The next part says, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, quote from Habakkuk, 2.4, to prove that God has no pleasure in traitors or turncoats. 
When a person has a full knowledge of Christ and repeatedly turns from Him, their hearts will harden and God will not save them because they continue to reject Jesus Christ, God's only provision for sin and for sinners. See, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving, the possessing, really, of the soul. The author was convinced that the great majority of to those to whom this letter was written, were true believers. They would not shrink back to eternal destructions as apostates, but they would press on in the faith and preserve and possess and save their souls. No true Christian will harden their heart, but every true Christian will persevere in the faith. Without perseverance, there is no reason to believe there is salvation. However, true Christians press on in Christ through their journey here on earth. Note carefully who is most in danger of committing this terrible sin of turning away from Christ. It is those who knew the truth and who had associated with God's people. It's not those who are notorious sinners. It is those who think, hey, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm not a sinner like those Gentiles. I don't need a crucified Savior in His blood to atone for my sins. In other words, it's the church-going religious person who does not see his need for the blood of Christ. Stephen Cole tells a story about conducting a funeral where he got to the service and read the little bulletin that the funeral home puts out and printed up. and It quoted John 3.16 like this. It said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. He said it omitted the part about shall not perish. He said, I don't know whether the the funeral home or the family of the deceased man was responsible, but he said, I didn't let him get away with it. I called attention to this glaring omission and made the point, if you don't put your trust in Christ, you will perish. See, the only options are Christ or judgment. If you reject Christ after hearing the gospel and being associated with God's people, you will fall into the hands of the living God and it will be an eternally terrifying ordeal. I don't want to be that guy. And you don't want to go there. But if you entrust yourself into the hands of Christ, which were pierced through for you, you will find God's abundant mercy, and grace to cover all your sins. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I'm just sorry that we're done for for this session. Um, We will continue next week in our study of Hebrews. And until we see each other again, uh, please stay safe. Practice good hygiene. Stay studied up in God's Word and eat well and get some exercise. And whatever you do, give God all the praise, the glory, and the honor that is due His name. I sincerely hope that we will see all of you real soon. God bless.